And today's message is entitled, Opening Lazarus' Tomb. Opening Lazarus' Tomb. What in the world does that mean? And how is it found in the book of Revelation? What are we talking about today? The burden of our study, Opening Lazarus' Tomb. But of course, before we begin any study of God's Word, what do we need to do first? That's right. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for so many things. We thank you for creating us. We thank you for sending your Son to redeem us and for communicating your will to us in your word. Please, Lord, help us to be faithful to that word, help us to understand it, and help us not be mere receivers of it, but help us to be messengers for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to start right back where we began the entire series. The very first passage we looked up in this series of meetings was Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 1, and we're going to do the same thing again today. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And again, for visitors, the little number next to the passage in the study guide is the page number in the Pew Bible. So if you're not familiar with the books of the Bible, please feel free just to go by the numbers and follow along with us as we study God's Word. Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 1, the opening lines to the book of Revelation. The revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. And again, we made the same point. Please don't be afraid of the book of Revelation. Yes, there are beasts. Yes, there are all kinds of plagues. And yes, there's even the Antichrist. But the focus of the book of Revelation is not the Antichrist. The focus is whom? Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. But now watch what happens. Which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And of course, the time that is near that the book of Revelation continually points us to is the time of Christ's return. His second coming is near even at the door. But what I want you to notice in this passage is the way that God sends out the message of his soon coming. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, but God gives Jesus this message to give. But then how does Jesus, does Jesus stand over the world and proclaim it himself? No. He sends his angel, so the angel's going to go give it, right? No. The angel gives it to John, but then John writes it down to give to the seven churches. At that time, they were little churches, but we receive the message as well. And apparently the people hear it by this chain of transmission. God to Jesus, to his angel, to his servant, to the letter that is read or or heard. And then you think, aha, that's the purpose. That that message is supposed to go to those people, and the people are blessed who hear it. It's a blessing for those who hear it. But now notice, after you go through the entire book of Revelation, go down at the last page of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22 And after reading this message from God or hearing this message from God, notice what the counsel from God is again. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And now notice especially verse 17. And the Spirit, which is, of course, the Holy Spirit... And the bride say, come. So there's an invitation at the very end of the book of Revelation. It's an invitation for others to hear this message. And apparently the Spirit says to come. The bride, which of course represents in this context, the church says come. But now watch this one. And the Spirit and the bride say come. Let him who hears say come. Now sometimes you might hear that mistranslated. You might let him who hears come and receive the message. But apparently, once you have heard and received the message, you in turn then say to someone else, come. Do you notice that? At the beginning of the book of Revelation, the chain goes from God to the Son, to the angel, to the prophet, to the letter, to the individual. Him who hears is blessed. But by the end of the book of Revelation, now he who hears is supposed to turn and say, come. That apparently God expects those who receive the message 
now to, in their turn, once they've accepted it and understood it, to become messengers themselves, yes? So Revelation starts with a blessing for those who hear, and then it ends with a mission for those who hear. Now you say, come. Which this is one of the most powerful keys of Revelation, is that God uses people to reach people. God uses people to reach people. Clearly we see that the Lord God, of course, the answer to could God do, regardless of what you fill in the blank, is always yes. But here, God chooses. He could have a megaphone. He could light up the night sky and paint his message across. He could send his Holy Spirit to speak the truth right. He could just infuse his information that he wants in your head right into your cranium. He could just weave it right into you. But he doesn't do that. He says, I have this message I want the whole world to hear. Here, Jesus, you send it. And Jesus is like, all right, angel, you send it. You send it to John. And John writes it down, and the letters go to the churches, and the people hear it themselves, and then they, in turn, are supposed to hear. God uses people to reach people. It's one of the most vital keys of Revelation. And this has been God's method all along. It's not like, oh, now in the end days. This has been God's intended purpose for every created being that has ever existed, that if he has a work to do, if he has a message to give, that he wants their cooperation with his efforts. We're going to see this. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. The beginning of God's organized church on earth, the very headwaters, if you will, of the children of Israel, Hear God's call to Abram to come out of his people and to become a special nation for his glory. But what was the purpose of this? Let's check it out and see what the scripture actually says. We're going to Genesis chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land I will show you. By the way, that's an Old Testament concept and a New Testament concept from the lips of Jesus himself. We should prioritize following God's lead regardless of what's around us. So sometimes God calls us out of things so that we can be in his will. Yes? You saw that in the book of Revelation. To the Babylon, it's depicted there as all that deception and falsehood of the Antichrist. God says, come out of her, my people. See, the same thing way back in Genesis. He says, get out of your country and from your family. I'm going to make something special out of you. Verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is a common Christian misunderstanding now that God just picked a special people just to pour out his blessings on, and their job was just to receive blessings. But according to the passage, why would God choose a special people? They weren't supposed to just merely receive the blessing. They were blessed to be a blessing, right? Apparently, the whole world was supposed to receive whatever they were given. God expected them to bless others with it. They were blessed to be a blessing. Let's see this in Isaiah chapter 49. Turning to the right in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 49. If you get to Jeremiah, just back up one book. You just overshot it. Okay. Isaiah chapter 49. Just to be clear, that Israel was not supposed to live unto itself, but was supposed to be a light to the whole world, specifically a light to the Gentiles, to the non-believers, to the outsider, the stranger or sojourner. Isaiah chapter 49, we'll look at verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, O whom? Israel. So notice that Israel was called to be a servant, and here God is speaking familiarly as though Israel was an individual. He's speaking to the whole nation. You are my servant. You exist to do what I tell you to do. You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be what? Glorified. God wants to be glorified in his people. He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I am glorified. And we go on in verse 6, look what he says. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. 
right? So if I have called you to serve, it's not just to serve those who are already in the camp. He said that's too small a thing. You don't exist for self-perpetuation. It's too small of a thing, he says. Let's look at it again. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a what? Light to whom? The Gentiles, the people who aren't in the faith, the people who don't know yet, the people who haven't been blessed. I have blessed you so that you will bless them. But apparently, as Jesus found out in his own life, instead of being a light to the Gentiles, they had literally built up walls and become a bushel that hide that light when the whole purpose of blessing was to be a blessing to others. And he says it's too small a thing for you just to sit around here and bless each other and build up each other, though it is good to do that, I will also, beyond that, give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see that? That you shall be my salvation. Now, pause for a second. Does salvation come through anyone except Jesus Christ? Of course not. But what they mean here, what he means here is that you will be my messenger, my agent to bring that salvation to others. Yes? So he's not saying you will be the saviors of the world, but in giving the message of the savior of the world, you will be an aid, an agent of their redemption. Again, we look. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So this idea of those receiving the message should give the message is not just a book of Revelation idea, even though it's fascinating that it has the bookends of that that you receive, and then at the end it says, now you say to somebody else, come. This has been God's purpose for his people on earth ever since he's had a people on earth, that they would receive to give. Now, when Jesus Christ came, he, of course, was not just a messenger. He was the message itself, yes? So he was a prophet in the ultimate sense. He didn't just have a message from God. He was the message from God. He said, If you've seen me, you have what? Seen the Father. So he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, as he says, and he comes to do what Israel was supposed to do, to be the salvation to the world, right? Now watch this. Luke chapter 4, Jesus shows up at the very onset of his ministry, at the very beginning of his work. Luke chapter 4, he goes home to Nazareth. Now look at verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. By the way, what was Jesus' custom when it came to attending church? He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He kept the Sabbath, and he fellowshiped with believers in the house of God. So if you ever had that question, and when it comes to Sabbath observance, what would Jesus do? He would go to church. Verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet whom? Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So he specifically looks for this passage, which comes from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon whom? Me. Because he has anointed whom? Me. To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to this, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So that me that the prophet wrote about is me that you see before you. I am the one, he says, who have been anointed to do this particular work of God, which includes the giving of sight to the blind, of course, and all the things that he just said there, and that he would proclaim, that he would be the messenger. So you could get the impression that Jesus came to be a one-man show, that he was going to heal the people, he was going to baptize the people, he was going to preach the message, he was going to do the work, and everyone else would simply watch him do this. But with this mandate, Jesus recognizes, this is my mission. How does he go about fulfilling that mission? Well, interestingly enough, he starts getting other people to do stuff for him. Watch this now. Matthew chapter 4. The first thing he does, one of the very first things he does, is collect some helpers called disciples. 
But they weren't just supposed to come along and watch him do ministry. He was training them to do ministry, right? Jesus was a living, breathing, training center for Christian workers. Okay? In fact, his very first opening lines to them are, look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me. But he doesn't just finish there. He says, here's what you're going to do when you come follow me. And I will make you, what? Fishers of men. Apparently, when you follow Jesus, it's not just to follow me, good advice, and get a blessing for yourself. He said, follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of men. This is Christ's modus operandi. This is how God works. You receive, and then you give. He said, follow me, and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to make you into fishers of men. So from the very onset, they understood, at least they should have understood, that they were being trained for mission work, that they were being trained as missionaries. They weren't just going to become members. And I don't want to skip too far ahead, but the Seventh-day Adventist Church has far too many members. We don't have near enough missionaries. But let's continue. The ministry of Jesus, the model minister. John chapter 3. Now let's go to another gospel account. John chapter 3. Now, as you look at the first part of this passage, John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 22 and 23. We know, as we studied about baptism just the other night, that John the Baptist chose his place to do his ministry because there was much water there, and he was, of course, John the Baptist. And that was a moniker given to him because he was baptizing people. He came preaching and baptizing. John chapter 3, look at verses 22 and 23. One thing you may not know. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and what? Baptized. Now, I know that John baptized people, and he had disciples, but apparently Jesus baptized people. At least that's certainly what the text seems to say, isn't it? In fact, look at verse 23. Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. So what you have is, here in the same recent, uh, nearby vicinity, you had Jesus and his disciples baptizing people, and you had John and his disciples baptizing people. And it doesn't take long, and of course, does John realize that there's a greater one coming after him? Absolutely. You know, he, he very clearly said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not worthy to even unloose his sandal. When Jesus came to get baptized, he said, I should be baptized of you. He would later say how he must increase and I must decrease, right? But at first, people who didn't understand that saw John start the work and then Jesus and his disciples come along and start working as well in the same way, in the same place, and it seemed a bit of a competition. Who's going to get more followers? Who's going to get more baptisms? And notice what happens here. It says, according to this passage, if all we had was this, again, verse 22, look carefully. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and what? Baptized. The implication is that Jesus was standing in the water baptizing people. But now look at chapter 4, just right next door. Therefore, when the Lord, that is Jesus, knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. And then it adds this interesting little statement. It's in parentheses in your Bible. Verse 2. Though Jesus himself did not, what? Baptize, but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. When it became a competition, it became a distraction to the work, it became a deterrent to ministry, Jesus resigned and went away. But the implication, that could, and obviously the writer understood that you could get the impression that Jesus was down in the water, calling people to repentance, preaching the sermon, so he was a one-man band. He's preaching the message, coming to him, come on down, get baptized, the next one. But no, 
What were the disciples supposed to do? They were just standing there watching Jesus preach, then watching people get baptized, and mm-hmm, just following, just watching along. No. They were the ones down in the water. They were the ones doing the baptism. Jesus was organizing their service. Is that clear? So the Bible makes it specifically clear that Jesus himself did not do the baptizing, though the credit went to him. His workers, his followers, executed the plan. This is fascinating. I'm going to show you some several other examples of this. You may not just get at the first passing glance. Let's go to the book of Luke. Back up one gospel to Luke chapter 10. If we had time, we could look at several examples of them. One, of course, is found in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. And they're supposed to practice doing the ministry that Jesus had been doing in front of them. Then Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70 more people. And look what he tells them in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 1. After these things, that is the sending out of the 12, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now, I think this is fascinating. Jesus organizes them. He sends out the 12 first. He does it in order, in sequence. Then the 70 come along. He said, all right, you 70, you're next up. You're on deck, okay? And now get yourself organized in groups of two. So they're supposed to go out two by two. After the 12, a group of 70, ready to go two by two. And notice where he sends them. He sends them to all these places where what? He himself was about to go. Was Jesus going to follow up on their work? Yes. He said, you go ahead of me, you till the soil, you do the prep work, and I will come along and evaluate and help and build up on what you have established, right? But he doesn't just send them out and say, let's have a prayer, good luck, God bless. No, 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 he organizes them, sends them out, and he says, now I'm going to come and do the follow-up. So Christ has a very clear method for how he's doing the work. He has a plan for how his work would go forward. Now he also adds this. Again, chapter 10, the book of Luke, verse 2 now. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is what? Great, but the what are few. What was he trying to teach them by sending out the 70? That we need more workers. Not just watchers, but workers. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest. And I love that he doesn't say, pray that the Lord will slow down the harvest so we can catch up. He does not say that. He says here, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what Christ was doing by sending out these 70, two by two, organizing them, getting them prepared, he said, now, I want you to know the principle of what I'm teaching you here. This is to be a model for how ministry is done. Pray that as the harvest is great, that the Lord will send out more workers just like I'm sending out you. He was a walking training center for Christian workers. He was the model minister. Let's go to the book of Mark. We're staying, of course, all inside of the Gospels because we're reading how Jesus did ministry. This is a fascinating little story here. It's a tremendously interesting story here. Mark chapter 6. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And we'll just start with verse 35. Jesus has been preaching all day. You know the story probably at least somewhat superficially, if not well. But let's take a look at it again with these new eyes of how to do ministry. Mark chapter 6, verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away. So Jesus' workers came to them and said, We have a solution to the problem. Let's just get rid of the harvest. Send them away. (laughs) That they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Cut them off, let them go take care of themselves. That's our solution. And I'm so glad Jesus was not like, eh, that's a good idea. No. He said, no, no, let's use this as a training opportunity. Obviously, they're not getting the uh, import bread. They're not seeing the significance. But he answered and said to them, 
You give them something to eat. Just sending them on their way. You're supposed to be my workers, now work. And they're sitting there thinking, um, this is a task we're ill-equipped for. <laughs> we don't have what it takes to do the work, right? And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Well, let's at least just figure out what we've got to start with, right? Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes we like, oh, that can't be done, and we don't even look at what we have. Ah, it's too big of a project. It's too far gone. It's too something like that. And we get defeatist even before even putting the foot in the water. Christ says, look, if you're going to fail, know what you're failing with, right? Figure out what's in the crowd to start with. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. This is what we've got. Now watch what happens in verse 39. It might be just a little incidental detail. You skip right by, but I think it's important. Then he commanded them to make them. So did Jesus command the people? No, he commanded his workers to command the people. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down. But that's not all it says. In groups on the green grass. So he commands them to sit in groups, but he doesn't leave it even that vague. He tells them what kind of groups. Watch this now. So they sat down in ranks. So you think of ranks, you think of military precision, you think of order and structure, right? Now, I, I almost guarantee that every picture that you've ever had of the feeding of the 5,000 and everybody just kind of grabbed a place on the grass and sat down and it was a big chaotic mess. But according to the Bible, it was organized. Okay? And Christ is the, is the general here telling his field commanders how to get the soldiers to do their work, right? He's modeling how to do ministry. Christ says, you give them something to eat. Well, how are we going to do it? Don't worry. God can provide what you can't but you be willing to do what you can do. Now, he never asks them, oh, five loaves and two fish. Now, the next step is to make a miracle happen. No, no, no. Christ does the miraculous part, amen? But the part that they can do, he expects them to do. So he says, have them sit down in groups. So they sit down in, in ranks, it says, in hundreds and in fifties. Now, you think this is the feeding of the how many? 5,000. And that's besides women and children. So, I mean, it's a very easy estimate to say, well, there's probably at least as many women and children as the men. Let's say that there were 10,000 people there, and they're in groups as small as 50s. I've been in small groups where you try to say, all right, let's pair up in groups of two, and it takes 10 minutes. Right? Was this a, all right, everybody take a seat, and he just starts tossing out bread? No. This took time to get organized. All right, guys, and you got 12 apostles, you got these people, you got to start working. I want them in ranks, I want them in groups, in 50s, and in hundreds, make this thing organized. You do the preparation work. Don't worry about the loaves and fishes, I'll take care of that, but you just step forward in faith and do what you can, and the Lord will provide the miracle. It's fascinating to me. Now, continuing on. Verse 41, and when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to whom? His disciples to set before them. So Jesus does not wait out in the crowd and start like, no, 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 no. Jesus is still up here commanding his forces, and he gives them to the disciples, and the disciples are supposed to give them. But think about that. You've got 12, 12 people with 10,000 receivers. Did you think they just went around? One by one by one by one by one by... No. Why were they organized in small groups to start with? So the disciples would go around and bring the resources to them, and then they would be sub-organized, right, to distribute among themselves. It's right there in Scripture. By the way, a great illustration of how the spirit of prophecy through the ministry of Alan G. White corresponds with and verifies, confirms the scripture that we just read. Let me read you something from a book called The Desire of Ages. If you've never read it, you've got to read this book. If you want to know the life of Christ, study the gospel record in the Bible, and go along with The Desire of Ages, it will open your mind. It's beautiful. 
And notice, commenting on this particular instance, in Christ's act of supplying the temporal necessities of a hungering multitude is wrapped up a deep spiritual lesson for all his workers. Okay, so this, though we look at the miracle of feeding 5,000, apparently there's a spiritual lesson that his workers should take to heart as we study this story. Now notice, Christ received from the Father, he imparted to the disciples, they imparted to the multitude, and watch this, and the people to one another. Did you catch that? I'd love to do a sermon sometime. Who fed the 5,000? Well, God did, sure, but, well, I mean, Jesus fed the 5,000, but I guess technically it was the disciples who actually, but then the multitude, it eventually got down to this guy, handed it to this guy, and that's who fed the 5,000. And of all that organization, only one part of it was the miracle, right? The rest of it was just stuff people could do. Christ says, you do what you can do, and I'll do what you can't. Friends, when we pray, I'm going to jump ahead to some end of the script kind of things here, but sometimes we pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you know, in the last days my spirit will be poured out and the great things will happen. What is it we're expecting to occur? We'll just kind of leave that hanging there for a second. But I have a feeling the way Christ does miracles at the end will be just the same way he does them at the beginning. He does the things we can't, but he expects us to do the things we can. By the way, there's another deep lesson. If you were to continue reading The Desire of Ages, the account of this, after, do you know that Jesus made too much miracle? Yeah. For what they needed to eat, everybody just didn't get just enough to be like, mm, I'm pleasantly full. They were stuffed to overflowing, right? There were leftovers. Twelve baskets full, right? Baskets of leftovers. I'm guessing it wasn't like the children's offering basket. I'm guessing these are you know, big baskets. And what were the people supposed to do? Does anybody remember? Take them home with them. Now that they received that blessing, they were supposed to take it in turn and pass it to someone else. There's a lesson for the method of labor God wants his message of mercy to go out to in the world. Let's turn our study guides over now. The early church was built on this kind of concept. Acts chapter 1, we're going to quickly review a quick survey of the early church. After Jesus leaves, those people whom he trained in ministry went on and built a church that Jesus said they were supposed to do. And some of the very last words that Jesus told them is recorded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Otherwise, it helps to answer the question. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, what do we receive? Power to do something, right? Power to work, not just a scene to watch. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses to me. And he tells them where? And in what order? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So notice that this, by the way, is the outline of the book of Acts. It unfolds just as Christ said it would, that the work began in Jerusalem with the day of Pentecost, right? They were all there for the feast, and they were all Jews, and then they went back to their own places, started building the church in Jerusalem. Then it went to Judea and Samaria, and finally it went out into the Gentile realms beyond the world. Now, Acts chapter 1, this is what Jesus said, and in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out, they were his witnesses right there in Jerusalem, just as Jesus had said. Now let's skip to the end of Acts chapter 2 and see the results of the preaching on the day of Pentecost. But as you're thinking about that, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended to give them power and give them an ability they did not have. They had a message and they spoke one language. But they had people of many languages there. So what does God do? He provides what they can't do on their own, and he gives them the gift of tongues. But they were supposed to open their mouths and say the message, right? God provides what they can't, but expects them to do what they can. And Peter is faithful, and they all give this message. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 
We read, then those who gladly received his word were what? Baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now that's a big celebration. 3,000 in one day. And what happened after they were baptized? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So apparently you had to review what you just learned. No problem with that. If you've gone through a course of study, go back over your course of study. Be grounded in it. They did. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then Pharaoh came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now look at the condition of the people. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. It's a beautiful picture of church unity. They had received the message, they had committed to the Lord in baptism, and now they're joined into church fellowship, and they're building up the doctrines, they're sharing with each other, they're selfless just like Jesus was. And if the book of Acts stopped right there, the church is in mint condition. But you will notice something occurs as time passes. The church continues to grow in Jerusalem, but God didn't expect them just to stay in Jerusalem. He had said Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth. But sometimes it can feel pretty comfortable just staying right where you are. You come to a spiritual, the Lord brought me here and here I am and I'm going to stay right here. This was happening in Jerusalem. And notice what happens. Remember they shared everything, they all loved each other, it was great. Go to Acts chapter 6. Such a beautiful sound. Acts chapter 6, look at verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, and again this is all still in Jerusalem, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Acts chapter 2, anybody who had need, we don't care, we just love everybody's share and share. Ooh, this is great. The church gets bigger, and it stays right there, and it gets bigger, and it stays right there, and all of a sudden, have you ever heard that term that idle hands become the devil's workshop? Okay. That spirit of selfless love starts to go a little bit cold. Now little factions start up. These are all believing Jews. They're all Jews, so culture they're the same, and they're believing Jews, so they have this spiritual connection now in Christ, but some are from the Hebrew part of the Jews, and some are Greek Jews, and you know how they are, And I don't know if the complaint was true or not, but a rift started to happen in the early church. They're just kind of staying around, hanging around each other, and the church was growing in Jerusalem, which is good, but apparently it has become a little, what would we call it today, a little megachurchy. And it's easy to become insular and just kind of stay inside this big conglomerate thing, and then all of a sudden, Start a little picking at each other, and little fights break out, and little this and that. And I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but in a church where a campaign to do something good is going on, there's less fighting in-house because you're working for those outside. But as soon as that mission is lost sight of, all of a sudden the color of the carpet gets real important. And the little things here and there start to crop up and become a bigger deal, and you lose focus on what your job description is, right? This is what happened. So what does the Lord do? Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And I don't know the picture you might have had of the early church's growth, but I'm guessing that it was something like mine, that the Lord had these 12 apostles, and they went around and preached and preached and taught and taught, and the church grew because the apostles were preaching, and the apostles were sharing their faith. And everybody was brought into the faith by either Peter or James or John or later on the apostle Paul, but that's how the church grew. Acts chapter 8, look at verse 1. After it says Saul was consenting to his death, that's a reference to Stephen who was stoned to death for representing Jesus Christ. And it says, at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. Notice the whole church is just at Jerusalem at this point. And what happens as a result of the persecution? And they were all scattered throughout where? The regions of Judea and Samaria. They weren't voluntarily going, so the Lord's like, you know what, if the carrot doesn't work, let's let a persecution stick come along and see if it'll move them. 
So they are forced by circumstance out into Judea and Samaria, out of their comfort zone. Notice carefully what it says here, though. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except whom? The apostles stayed back at conference headquarters at home base. So who are all they that went out? All the lay members, all the other people, right? They went out. And what do we record down here in verse 4? Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered, which we know specifically were not the apostles, went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. Apparently, this persecution helped them recalibrate to the mission that they were supposed to have, and they realized, hey, I'm in Judea and Samaria. Didn't Jesus tell us, oh, (laughs) I have a job here? And then they start preaching the gospel again, and the church grows once again. It's fascinating how this works. Thus, we read in Ephesians chapter 4, this same mentality of how the work is to go forward. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Now, I read from the New King James Version here. I especially appreciate the wording of the New International Version, which is what is in your study guide. You can follow along with either one, but I'll be reading from the study guide's New International Version on this one. It clears up, you know, some of the common misconceptions. By the way, on this particular passage, we talked about the comma when Jesus was dying on the cross and he said to the thief on the cross, either today you will be with me in paradise or I'm telling you today that you will be in paradise depending on the placement of the comma. It changes the whole meaning of the, of the passage. The same thing here happens in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we start with verse 11. The Apostle Paul is talking about the church and the spiritual gifts that Christ has given it. And it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, on verse 12 is where the difference comes. If you have the King James Version, does anyone here have a King James Version Bible? Great. All right. Now, I want you to notice something that's wrong in that Bible. Yes, I said it. In the same way that Luke gets the comma wrong, Luke didn't get it wrong. The translators of Luke, let me say, you know, gets the comma wrong about the state of the dead on the, uh, the thief on the cross. Same thing happens in the work, and it makes a radical difference. Okay? Verse 12, you will read, if you have the King James Version, for the equipping of the saints, comma, as though that's one job, then... For the work of ministry, comma, there's job number two, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So apparently apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors, evangelists, they're supposed to do three jobs according to the comma placement in Ephesians chapter 4. They are supposed to do what? What's the very first thing they're supposed to do? Equip the saints. The next thing they're supposed to do is do the work of ministry. And then they're supposed to build up the body of Christ. Now, the new King James removes one of those commas and makes a big, big difference. Now, listen to verse 10, I mean, verse 12 from the new King James. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, it takes it down to two jobs. But apparently the equipping of the saints is so that they can do the work of ministry. Right? And again, like I said, I prefer, especially the way the New International Version renders it, it makes it all just one job. Listen carefully. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, listen now, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the building up of the body of Christ is by the members doing work and their job as pastors and evangelists and teachers and whatnot is to give the equipping and training so that the people can do their job and the church will be built up as a result. It's a whole different read on it. But this is more faithful to the picture that has been presented. You know, we've talked about how do you know which version is right? If there's a text in question, you look at all the other texts that pertain to that idea and you line it up with the one that squares. Here, this is the correct interpretation because the context tells us. Continue reading. Until we all reach the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, 
Then will we be no longer infants, talked back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will become, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, uh, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the body of Christ grows as everybody who's a part of that body does their work faithfully. People sometimes might ask, well, why isn't the church growing? You know what we need? We need, a dip- we need workers. What the church needs more than money, yes, I said it, What the church needs far more than money or new shiny programs or new signs out front or whatever the thing is. We need faithful workers who will do what they can for the Lord. That's the bottom line. It's the bottom line. As every part does its share. And of course, our message is entitled Opening Lazarus' Tomb. And I want to close with this example from Christ's life. And from Christ's ministry, we go to John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. And I want you to see right there in the passage things you may not have seen before. John chapter 11, I'll just read a little bit of, starting with verse 1 to give the context so you understand what's going on. It says in verse 1, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Several times there it tells us what condition Lazarus is in. Is he dead? No, he's simply sick. Verse 4 When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death. Now, people get hung up on that, but didn't he die? Yes, but it didn't end in death. Lazarus might have died from something else, but it wasn't going to be from this illness that he died and stayed dead, right? But for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So Christ understands, as he gets this message, put yourself in the position here. He receives a message that the man he loves, Lazarus, the the brother of Mary and Martha, is sick, and they say, Lord, You need to come here because Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Now, pause right here. Has Jesus healed sick people before? Absolutely. Could Jesus heal this one? Sure. Do you think they believed Jesus could heal him? Sure. Why did they write in the letter? (laughs) Right? What's the purpose of telling him? It's so that he can do something about it, right? It's the same way that Jesus' mom talked to him when they ran out of drink at at the wedding of Cana. Hey, they're all out of wine. Hint, you know. Here he gets a message. Lazarus is sick. Maybe you should come by and visit. Christ gets this message and said, you know what? I'm going to use this as an opportunity to teach them something. This is not going to end in death, but they need to learn a lesson here. So I want to be clear. Already it's clear that people believe Jesus can heal the sick. That's why they write to him. Now, Watch verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her, and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. It says he loved them, so he didn't go heal him. What? Then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So Christ purposely is like, all right, he's really sick. Let's give it some time. Maybe it'll really run its course. And he dies. And then Christ says, all right, Now let's go. He stays away just so Lazarus would die. That would be a pretty important lesson, right? (laughs) Now watch this. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, you know, lately the Jews have sought to stone you. Are you going there again? Now they're, they're afraid for their own lives. You know, we get this in here. And he explains to them, and then go down to verse 11. These things he said, and after this he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may what? Wake him up. Now, do they believe, I know know this sounds really common sense, nuts and bolts, do they believe that if a man is literally sleeping, that Jesus could jostle him awake? Yes, they believe that. Anybody can do that. 
but they kind of rebuked you. It's like, well, if he's sleeping, he's going to get better. Just leave him alone, right? Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, that they, might, they thought he was speaking about talking, taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now watch carefully verse 15. And I am what? Glad. Now, is he glad that Lazarus had to go through this experience? Not for Lazarus' sake, right? But he says, I am glad for your sakes. This is a, I let him die so I could teach you a lesson. I was glad that I was not there, that you may what? Believe. Now, the question is, believe what? Did they already believe that he could heal him if he was sick? Yes. Did Mary and Martha believe Jesus could heal him if he was sick? Yes. Apparently, what do they not believe? They can bring back from the dead. Right? So the implication is Jesus is strong. He's powerful enough to cure, but he's not, you know, really God to bring back the dead. He's just kind of, you know, eh, on the scale of godness, if there is such a thing. Right? Jesus is like, we have to teach you a lesson. I'm going to let this guy die, then we'll go visit. Then we go, now, watch this now. Skip down to verse 20. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Notice carefully what she says. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have what? Does she believe Jesus could have healed him? Yes. Does she believe that he's going to do anything now? No. At least not in his own power, right? Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Like if it's just you showing up, you can heal the sick, but you need a higher power to raise the dead. Hmm. They kind of almost, I mean, this is not an argument, but they kind of have an interesting little back and forth debate, right? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I'm telling you definitively, he's going to wake up. And she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's like, I'm good on the state of the dead. I know about the second coming. I, I get that. Someday, Jesus said, I'm not talking about someday. I'm talking about today. Later this afternoon, you're going to hang out with Lazarus again. Do you get what I'm saying? Who do you think is coming at the last day to raise him up? <laughs> it's me, right? But you don't think that you don't get it yet, right? Jesus said to her, and notice we sometimes like crochet these or something, or just kind of put this on the, we kind of have these fluffy, this is kind of a thing you'd see on a pillow or something at a craft sale. I am the resurrection and the life, right? But how do you think Jesus expressed it? He's like, I am the resurrection. <sighs> in fact, the scripture says that he was groaning in himself. We're going to see that later on, right? He's frustrated. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Right? He says, I'm glad it happened so that you can believe. Do you believe that I'm the resurrection or I'm just a guy doing miracles on the street like a... Come on. Now, what's fascinating, so the disciples thought, if we get there, we can wake him up. Martha thinks it. Now, there's one more person. Verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <laughs> it's the same thing he's been getting for days now, right? <laughs> well, you should probably get there so he doesn't die because you know death is stronger than you. It's like, Jesus was like, well, let's give it a few days then. Right? <laughs> He said, I'm doing this so that you're going to believe something. Now, I set all that context up for this. Everyone there thinks Jesus is strong or powerful or miraculous or whatever, but not strong enough to raise the dead, yes? Okay. That's the context. So everyone there is doubting his power. So Jesus says, all right, take me to the tomb. Where is this guy? And we read. 
Go down to verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and what was in the way? A stone lay against it. And Jesus said, notice what Jesus did not do. You think I'm weak? Let me show you what I can do to this rock. (laughs) Right? Rock, move hence. Right? No. He stands up. Everybody's watching. He's gone up to the tomb. And there's the cave. There's this big rock. And he's like, can somebody get the, the rock for me, please? It does not inspire confidence in your power. If you're going to raise the dead, but you can't even move the rock. Yes? But Jesus says, you, take away the stone. Take, take away the stone. Somebody, let me get that rock out of the way. I need to do something strong, and I don't want to waste all my strength on this rock. Take away the stone. And then Jesus prays to his father. He's like, these people need to understand, Lord. Show them what we can do. And then all of a sudden, of course, verse 43. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. No equivocation. No like, I hope this works. It's going to look bad if it doesn't. Oh, no. Does Jesus believe? Absolutely. He says it definitively. Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44. And he who had died came out, but watch this, how? Bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, have you ever thought about what that would look like? Because I had the picture in my head that, you know, and you look up the images online and they have people, they have Lazarus walking out of the tomb. But it specifically tells us what condition his body was in, right? It was bound. What parts of him does it list as being bound? His hands, but especially for coming out of a tomb, his feet are wrapped up and tight. And by the way, how's his face doing? It's covered, right? Lazarus, are you in there? Right? How do you come out? I mean, we could do a little experiment, an object lesson, and tie somebody up, and it'd be a Sabbath you wouldn't forget. But, but think about it. Your feet are tied up. Your hands are bound. You're stuck like this. What are your options? <laughs> you can probably do some sort of, like, thing like this, right? Or hop. <laughs> and I guess the least dignified thing would just flop over and roll. <laughs> But there's only so many options. And my question is, why didn't Jesus, if you're going to go to all the trouble of raising the dead, not just move the rock yourself? Why not just unwrap the guy, let him come out clean and looking nice and fresh, smelling like a new car, you know? Because Christ was trying to teach a lesson not only about his own power, what he can do, but also the responsibility of what he expects you to do commenting on this desire of ages page 535 christ could have commanded the stone to remove and it would have obeyed his voice is he the creator of all things yes and if he wants a rock to move he can move a rock he could have bidden the angels who were close by his side to do this at his bidding invisible hands would have removed the stone he could have had other creatures but you couldn't see them do it and it would look but he said no 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 but it was to be taken away by human hands. Thus, Christ would show that humanity is to cooperate with divinity. And here's this beautiful principle. What human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. Friends, let me ask you again. When we pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what is it we're expecting the Holy Spirit to do? Jesus has given us example after example that he will provide the miracle, but we have to do what we can do. Now let's take this to the winning of souls and giving this message of Jesus soon coming. 
I nor you, not one of us can do the conversion of a soul, right? Only God can change people's hearts, amen? Only God can actually convert someone. That is not our job. However, our job is to cooperate with his work of conversion by having the work of conversation. Do you hear what I'm saying? Sometimes we say, Lord, help that person over there. And I'll sit here and watch you and praise your name when it's done. No, sir. What human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. Let me go back to the book of Revelation. Apparently you're blessed if you hear the words, but then you have a commission at the end. Let him who hears say, come. And maybe it won't read to a conversion, but that's on God. The miracle is on him, and trust me, changing a heart is just as significant as raising the dead. It takes just as much a power of the Holy Spirit to raise someone spiritually to life as it does to raise them physically from death. You cannot do it on your own. It's only a work of the Holy Spirit. But Christ expects that we would be co-laborers with him as we finish his work in this generation. Let me ask you a question. I've asked it every time we've had these presentations. Please raise your hand. Has this message been clear? Have you understood the words? Amen. That's great. But more than convincing, it is my prayer that there's some convicting going on. That as we look at what God intends for his people from Old Testament to New Testament to the last days in the book of Revelation, that not only are we supposed to be receivers, but we're supposed to be givers. Not only supposed to be blessed by the message, we're supposed to be blessings to others by being messengers that they need. That God wants his work to finish on this earth, but he will not do it in front of us. He wants to do it through us. And that every one of us is under obligation to God himself, personal accountability. What did you do with what I gave you? You know, we started our presentations talking about how everybody wants to know what the Bible says until they find out what the Bible says, right? Because like, uh-oh, now I'm wrong. I've got to change something. Same is true for this last message. Not only does the Bible teach this truth, but it also teaches that you need to teach this truth. This is just as important key of revelation as anything else, that in the last days, God will have a people who are not only faithful, but they will be messengers for him. So my appeal is simple today. I don't want you to leave being like, oh, that's a good theory. wonder what's for lunch. Which, by the way, for lunch, <laughs> we have a wonderful spaghetti dinner planned. We'd love to have everyone there. Okay? Lunch is taken care of. Lunch is on us. But beyond the physical food, okay? spiritually, Lord, how can I cooperate with your work? Is there some stone that, that you want me to move to get out of the way of somebody so, so I can be a helper for you? Is there some grave clothes you need me to move? Is there something in my life I could be doing that I'm not? That on the other side of that is a miracle God wants to do, but he's not going to do it in front of you. He wants to do it through you. Is there someone I could reach? And maybe, by the way, we hear this appeal a lot, like there's someone in your family, friends or family members, but sometimes, honestly, your family members are the least likely to receive a word from you. You know why? Because they know you. By the way, don't you're in good company. The same thing happened to Jesus. If we would have kept reading in that account when he went to the town of Nazareth and said, I am this fulfillment of prophecy, you read the very next thing, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? I remember him, he was a kid, and now he's all Mr. Messiah, you know. Same thing might happen to you. And I remember when we used to do this, we were in the bar, and now you're going to preach to you. That may not be the most fertile soil for you. Someone else may have to win them. I know great preachers who've won thousands of people, but their own parents are still yet converted. And I've heard them make appeals, somebody please go win my dad. So I don't know who it is for you. But it might be a friend, it might be a neighbor, it might be a co-worker, it might be a family, or, or it might be a stranger you haven't met yet. 
But I promise you, God wants to win souls, not just in front of you, but through you. And friends, membership in God's end-time church is not about watching the work go forward. It's about working and hastening Jesus' incoming. So my appeal for you today is not just a teary-eyed come down front, even though if you want to be teary-eyed and come down front, there's no problem with that. But I want something substantive. God wants something substantive from you. Go home and think about logistically, Lord, how can I do your work more effectively? Is there someone that I could be reaching that I'm not? Is there something I could be doing, but I'm not? Is there something I haven't even thought of yet, but I want to be willing for when you tell me what it is? My appeal is that you would pray to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am, send me. I may not even know where yet, but I'm willing to start looking and trying and doing what I can so I can see you do what I can't. Does that, under, does that make sense? We're going to sing a closing hymn today, but as we sing, I'm going to ask you to stand, but I don't want you to stand because everybody's singing a hymn. I want you to stand in commitment to saying, Lord, I want to be a worker for you. Send me out. Show me what to do. And if I fail, fix me up, but make me into a fisher of men. Help me move Lazarus's. Help me open Lazarus's tomb. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.